This is a previously recorded episode. This show is broadcasting live from Detroit Sound Studios above Activate Gaming and is part of the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. You're listening to the Innovates podcast featuring speaker and innovation expert Michael Mode. We bring you innovation on the 8s with new episodes posted every day that ends in 8, the 8th, 18th, and 28th of the month. The Innovates podcast is part of the Podcast Detroit Network. For more information about Michael Mode and his corporate speaking and consulting services, please visit innovates.com. That's I N N O V E I G H T S.com or biglightbulb.com. And now, get ready for another creative conversation with your host, Michael Mode. Welcome to the Innovates Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Mode, and we've got another great creative conversation lined up for you today. Uh, I've been a professional magician since the age of uh, 13. I went on to perform in the corporate market, which I still do today. And uh, I've also invented a bunch of magic tricks that are used by some of the uh, top names in magic around the world. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to uh, record David Copperfield specials and watch those every day. And uh, then later on, I had a, a childhood dream come true. I was invited to uh, join David Copperfield's team and work as part of his creative group, Magic Lab. Now, more recently, I've uh, transitioned into speaking. I speak about innovation, and I teach companies how to think like a magician so that they can solve challenges that they feel are impossible. And uh, when I research magic and the history of magic, I find that magicians have always been on the, the forefront of innovation and technology. And our guest today is uh, at the top of that list. He's a, um, a magician who is uh, also a, uh, a toy and a game and a puzzle inventor. He's from New York, and he uses math and illusion in many of his inventions. Uh, he's created for Hasbro, uh, Random House. He was the creative consultant uh, to Mattel for Harry Potter. And he also uh, worked with Milton Bradley to develop a line of uh, magic called Magic Works, which went on to become the best-selling magic trick line in history, doing uh, over $20 million in sales in its first year. And uh, it's an honor to have uh, the guest on here today. Please say hello to uh, Mark Sedaticati. How you doing, Mark? Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me on your show. Good. Now, you, uh, you're a magician first and foremost, wouldn't you say? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> yes. I, I got interested in magic when I was a little kid and... And everything that I do, even most of the things in the, even the toys and games that I do involve some kind of magic principles, because that's what I really love, is uh, magic is my first love. Right. Now, how would you say that uh, magic helps you create and invent? How do you use the, the magic and the illusion to, to help you? Well, it, it just kind of comes out automatically. When I, I went to art school uh, out of uh, high school, School of Visual Arts in New York, and I was always interested in crea creativity or drawing or painting or doing something creative. And uh, through, when I was a student at art school, I took a freelance job, uh, which was designing a game. And that's when I first uh, realized that you can actually make royalties uh, because the payment was going to be on a royalty. In other words, not just a straight payment, and that sounded good to me. Right. So I kept pursuing, and the toy business was very open to 
in fact, that's the way it works, to license your ideas and get royalties. So that's how I found out about that many years ago. So I started doing games and, and uh, puzzles and trying to license them. Of course, it took me a long time before I was actually able to license my first game because the way I work is I, I'm working totally on speculation. I come up with ideas and I pitch them to uh, companies, much like an author with a book. And if you do sell it, then you get a royalty and like an advance payment. So... Uh, but with games and puzzles and toys. So the toy business has always been a great industry for licensing ideas. Right. And uh, so it wasn't until much later. I, I did many games and puzzles, and then in around 1988, I did my first magic set with, uh, with Pressman. I had been selling them games, and they had a license for Harry Blackstone Jr. They had the license for them, and they were looking for maybe another magic set. And I didn't even think about inventing magic. I didn't even, you know, think about, how, well, how would you invent a trick or anything. But then I was, uh, I had that problem of trying to come up with a little traveling magic show for the Harry, for the, uh, uh, Harry Blackstone uh, line. So right. that was my first magic set that I actually designed in 1988. I remember that magic set. That was great. The Harry, the traveling magic show. Mm-hmm. I remember so, it. So getting back to the invention process... What I realized is that designing magic is just no different than designing a game. I mean, with a game, um, and, and it surprises me that more game designers don't invent magic, because you're, what you, you do, generally, there are two ways you can invent. One way is you can actually say, well, I want to make a, a rose float, or I want to make something disappear. Or in the, in the case of a game, you might want to make a game about the stock market, or you might want to make a a game about uh, you know anything you know you might pick the the topic first and then you make the game around it but the second way to design is the way I design games and magic tricks is I look for interesting principles right. could be a mathematical principle could be a mechanical or a mechanism or something interesting to start from and then wherever that uh, that mechanism or that that principle takes you you make it either a game or a puzzle or a magic trick so designing a game in, in the game business, you have different types of games, like four in a row or checkers or chess, or you have a lot of standard themes, you know, a start to home board game. And so you look for some interesting way to do it in a different way. Right. Well, in Magic, we have standard kind of plots for tricks, four ace tricks or mixing cards and unshuffling them. And, you know, we have standard uh, kind of plots. So... And we try to come up with a, something interesting or something different yeah. uh, in the simplest way, not complicated. It has to be very, very simple. Right. And that's what you learn over time. The simpler, the better. Right. Because anybody could design a game, and almost you know any any inventor that puts their mind to it can probably invent a magic trick. But most of the time, it's going to be very complicated. How do you do it very simply? How do you do something very, very simple that seems natural that you don't need a lot of instructions? That's very you know, easy for people to understand, easy for people to get into. Right. You've so. got so many clever ideas that uh, uh, some of them are combinations of, of many different ideas that you take and you put your own twist on them. Uh, one of the things that you came out with a few years ago, and, and I believe this won the most innovative Toy of the Year award, uh, was your Gigazo puzzle. Uh, 300 pieces in a puzzle that can be arranged to form a portrait of anybody in the world. Is that correct? Right. And, yeah. and explain it's a little bit how, how that puzzle. works. Well, 
um, that was based on my friendship with a computer programmer named uh, Ken Knowlton, who worked at Bell Labs in the 60s, and uh, I and he uh, developed a lot of he, he was doing a lot of mosaic uh, type of artwork using computer aided pictures. And again, like I said before, I really look for principles first. And right. when I met Ken, I was always trying to think of uh, something that we can do together. And it seemed like very obvious uh, what we did do with the Chicago, but it wasn't because a lot of the best and most obvious, a lot of ideas that seem obvious were not at all obvious. And they and, and it takes some time to get to them. And uh, so Ken uh, was a real genius at programming and, and, and creating computer-generated images. And I thought, well, at that time, the computers were, this was about five years ago or six years ago when we started working on it, and it was obvious that technology was creeping into the toy industry and apps and all this kind of stuff. So I was thinking, is there a way, I asked Ken, is there a way that we can actually make a puzzle? I didn't have an idea for a puzzle mm -hmm. yet where we can personalize it and maybe people can make a picture of their face. Right. And how does and that work? Do they take a picture of themselves and then and then take the a picture yeah. of you, you well, you have a, a 300 pieces and the pieces instead of having a picture on it have shading, different shades, a, a monotone, just one color like uh, you know, a sepia shading. And those 300 pieces can be actually arranged to uh, in, you know, can be turned and put into the uh, an array that makes a picture of a face and it's a mosaic type of picture so when you stand back a little bit the face pops in so now on the back of each one of those pieces of the 300 pieces is a different symbol so there's 300 different symbols right so the way the final puzzle ended up is that you take a picture of you take anybody either upload one from your uh, picture file on your computer or your phone now or you, you just take a picture directly with the with an app and uh, it automatically uh, generates a code, uh, so it it gives you the picture of what you'll get on your phone, or on the computer. You'll see what the final result will be. Then you click another button, and it'll give you the code that you follow. That's that's just fascinating. And there's a video of this online that people can see. It's Jigazo, J I G A Z. It's hard to imagine. Yeah. You really need to see it. And the name is a, a Japanese name, right? Well, I work a lot with uh, Tenyo. That was I when mm -hmm. I. When I had the idea and uh, developed enough with Ken that we could present it, the first company I presented it to was Tenyo. And, and Tenyo is a big right. Japanese toy and magic company. Yeah, they develop yeah. a lot of magic tricks, but their main business is jigsaw puzzles, mm -hmm. and they were friends of mine through magic. And uh, <clears throat> so they got very interested and actually licensed it for Japan. It became a big hit over there. And what does Jigazo so, mean? So it was Hiroshi Kondo at Tenyo that came up with the name Jigazo, of course, because I wouldn't know what Jigazo meant. Jigazo in Japanese means something like self-portrait or make my own face. So That's great. Actually, it was a perfect name for it. Now, you've worked with several of the toy companies, and you've also created puzzles and toys for the Rubik's brand, right? Oh, yeah, I did several. And you got to meet Erno Rubik, the guy, the inventor of the oh, Rubik's yeah, Cube? several times. I wow, mm -hmm. wow. And what was that like? Well, the first time I met him was when the uh, Cube came out back in 1981 at Ideal Toy Company. But back then, he didn't speak, uh, I don't think, even any English. So this, uh, <clears throat> the Cube became a really big hit overnight. It was like a really big sensation. So whenever a, a toy company has a really big hit, they look to 
come up with other versions of it and extend the line, you know, because they want to capitalize on their success. So um, I came up with an idea at the t- that time, the first product I did with Rubik, and actually I didn't work with them directly at that point. What I, I just came up with an idea for a game where you played tic-tac-toe on the cube. You had a little pegs that you, you plugged into the cube, and, and it was called Rubik's Game. We, it ended up calling Rubik's Game, and you played tic-tac-toe on it, by putting, trying to get three in a row on your color on the cube. And so uh, we licensed it to Ideal, and uh, I thought I was going to make a lot of money at that time. I was just starting in the toy industry back in 1981. And, uh, but then as soon as the game was introduced, the cube, like all fads, you know, they come and go. Sometimes those fads can die very quickly, and right. that's exactly what happened when my first game was introduced so right i didn't quite make the money that i made but i did meet uh at the toy show uh rubik was there because it was still you know a very big thing in the industry so uh, mm-hmm. that's what happened then you've also got some very cutting edge uh things you you just recently did a magic set that uses uh iphone right with, with an update of yeah. a, a hologram like a pepper's ghost illusion right Pepper's Ghost is... A, and for those uh, uh, those people that aren't familiar with Pepper's Ghost, if you've been to Disney World, you've seen the Haunted Mansion, you've seen the you know, the ballroom scene there where they're all dancing around the ghosts. That That's an old, very old illusion going back to the mid-1800s. Um, and it basically is reflection. Yeah. If, right. If you uh, take any image, it, it's the same as if, if you're inside a house at night or inside, and you look outside... Uh, the window, you'll see a reflection in the uh, in the glass. So mm-hmm. it uses that principle. And again, you took reflection. this you took this ancient pr- uh, principle, but updated it into something new and something different for uh, today's market. And and talk a little bit about that. Well, <clears throat> we're always uh, magicians, and even in the toy business, we're always looking to try to bring whatever the latest technology is into our industry. So. Uh, with I, the, for many years, I was always trying to think of a product with uh, using uh, uh, Pepper's Ghost because I always loved the principle. I mean, every magician loves that principle. But the problem was it was too expensive. With the uh, you know, you'd have to make your own projection system, which became too expensive. But now that every kid has an iPhone or you know a, a, a smartphone that displays video. That solves that problem. So now all you need to do is provide the screen and some kind of way to play with it. So the problem of the expense has been eliminated because of the technology. So then we're able to uh, create like a little magic set with using the phone. You, you place the phone on the little on the cardboard set with the cardboard theater, and that and the little video creates the scenario, the the ghost, shall we say, right. and uh, <clears throat> then. The real problem is trying to make something with play value. That was the hard part because when we first started showing people <coughs> the, uh, the the set, they were thinking, "Well, why do you need the set? You know, they uh, why don't you just have an app?" <coughs> so you really had to you have to really develop these things. It's one thing to have the idea, uh, but the idea is only a very small. The story is a really big have, part of it, right? You, you gotta, have to work yeah, it out. Yeah. You have to work out every detail. You have to make it. So it's not just a novelty or a one-shot wonder where you look at it when you play with it once. How does it have repeat value? Because 
you know, this thing has to sell anything in the toy business is probably going to sell for twenty or thirty dollars. So, and I would say it, your uh, your background as a magician helps with that because you know how to present a uh, a show. You know, you make it a, a routine rather than just uh, you know. The here's story a is very important. Yeah. the the whole the whole thing having repeat play, having play, you know, having so that people are going to want to do it again and again, and not just do it once and then put it aside. Right. That's very important. And and with magic, the too, the, the the magic that you do, I I, I perform uh, close up card magic. That's my love. Ever since I was a little kid, I've been interested in. I've been doing card tricks, and that's that's what I love. So you learn you have to be able to do things that people really like, and you learn how uh, w- what people like by performing magic for them. Right. Now, we've only got a few minutes left here, but I'd like to talk a little bit about what inspires you. And uh, I know one of those things and uh, something you like to surround yourself with things that are creative. We've talked about how we both collect impossible objects and puzzles Mm -hmm. and magic, but with the intent that those things are going to inspire us to create other things. You've got an incredible collection of pens. How many pens do you have? Oh, I haven't counted them lately, but probably 10,000. 10,000. When you say pens, what... what? And these aren't like regular ballpoint novelty, pens. Novelty yeah. pens, right. what would be categorized as novelty pens. In other words, a pen with an idea. Mm-hmm. And the way I started collecting pens was that I taught a design class at the School of Visual Arts in New York many years ago. And I needed a way, when you, te- when you teach a class, you have to try to find ways of teaching people how to be creative. So I came across a few pens in a store that had different like uh, uh, gad, uh, ideas involved on the pen. So what I like is, I, what I really collect is different solutions to the same problem. Right. And that's what these pens are, because some one pen. If I give you the, the problem, design a pen, just take a simple thing like a pen and just design it and put a new idea into it, well, then it starts to become interesting because you're seeing the same problem with different solutions and that's what these 10,000 pens represent to me this different solutions to the same problem mm-hmm. and it's a way that you teach yourself how to be creative now when i started i was thinking about when i started collecting i didn't realize how important the pens would become to me because i just used it as a simple demonstration in the class i had 5 or 10 pens to start with then i slowly picked up more and i realized it was more before you know it i had 50 of them and i would do a pen lecture every year in my classes and I would you know use the pens mm-hmm. and slowly the collection kept growing and you see different category categories and different ideas some of them have very interesting mechanisms that you wouldn't think of and I, and others just are very obvious like some of the pens have just like a head you know stuck on top of it and it's really not that interesting by itself but when you see it in the context of a collection with many different ideas and you start to categorize it it really starts to open up your brain to all these different ways of solving problems. Right. And to me, the most important thing is that there's two different types of ideas. The first type of ideas, types of ideas that you might w- come up with had you been given the problem. If I gave you the problem, design a pen, you know, you'll see a solution. You'll say, yeah, I could have come up with that. Oh, that's interesting. And those are nice ideas, but the best kind of ideas are the kind of ideas that you look at and you say, I would have never thought of that. In a million years, even if I was trying to solve that problem for a million years, I would never come up with that approach. Mm -hmm. And those are the most valuable ideas that really teach you something because it opens up some kind of door in your mind that... uh, you know, what wasn't open before, and it, and it gets stored in your subconscious somewhere, 
and for later use. Because the more ideas you see, that's why I collect what I what I really collect are ideas, and that's what the pens represent. That's what the impossible objects I collect. That's everything that I collect is really collecting ideas because they get stored in your subconscious for later use, and you don't realize it. Like over the years, I've seen ten thousands, tens of thousands of magic tricks, tens of thousands of of toy ideas, and all of that gets stored somehow. Well, every time you see a new idea, it's like that, aha, oh, wow, aha, aha. So right. all those, that backup, so that's my inventory in my brain that's stored there that I draw from. Not consciously, but subconsciously it happens. Yeah, I talk about that in my presentations, that the, the quickest way I can explain creativity is insatiable curiosity. And uh, the more, you know, creativity is just about connecting things. And the more things you're curious about, the more options you'll have to and, make those connections down the road. And the more things that you road. have stored in your brain exactly. in, that, in the area that you're interested in working in, yeah. and that gives you more to draw from. I used to collect swatch watches and Pez dispensers, and it's similar to your pen collection because they were, you know, it was a watch, but they changed every variable on it so many different times and uh, just made it unique. And they made thousands of different watches from the same basic form. I now collect uh, Target gift cards, and I use those in my innovation talks mm -hmm. because they've that's really great. pushed the limits of creativity yeah, with I those things. Yeah, I love the different solutions to the same problems. Yeah, I think that's, that's really one great. of the best ways to learn. Yeah. Well, I know we could talk for hours about this, and uh, we'll definitely have you back on a future episode because you're a fascinating man, and you're just brilliant. I'm a big fan of your work, and well, thank uh, you've you very got much. one of my favorite books uh, um, you have the magic show book, which is completely interactive, and you sit there and you read a book and you do the tricks yourself, and it completely fools you. So, uh, if you're out there, check that out. Check out uh, Mark Sedicati, and uh, you can visit his uh, website. We'll have the link to that on our on our web page, and uh, you can see several videos of his effects. But uh, thanks again, Mark, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Innovates. I'm your host, Michael Mode. Until next time. Stay curious. Thanks for listening to the Innovates podcast featuring speaker and innovation expert Michael Mode. Make sure to check back on the 8th. We will post new episodes of Innovates on the 8th, 18th, and 28th of the month. The Innovates podcast is part of the Podcast Detroit Network. For more information about Michael Mode and his corporate speaking and consulting services, please visit Innovates.com. That's I-N-N-O-V-E-I-G-H-T-S.com or BigLightBulb.com. This is a previously recorded episode.